Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. This Australian Investors Podcast episode is brought to you by The Intelligent Investor, Australia's premier investment research membership service. You can get a free trial for 15 days, no credit card details required. To access the insights of some of Australia's best analysts, use the coupon code RASK and secure your Intelligent Investor membership today. We're proud to have The Intelligent Investor as an ongoing supporter of the Australian Investors Podcast. As a result, RASK does not earn a volume-based fee. Simply head to intelligentinvestor.com.au or use the link in your podcast player to access your free trial. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast is also proudly supported by SelfWealth, Australia's leading independent broker. Over 120,000 investors trust SelfWealth with over $9 billion in equities. With SelfWealth, you can trade ASX, US and Hong Kong listed shares for a flat fee. On a $10,000 investment with Comsec, you'd pay $29.95 in fees. Yet with SelfWealth, it's just $9.50. The thing I like about SelfWealth is the full access to fundamental company data and how easy it is to trade US, Hong Kong, and Aussie shares in one place. You can see your Apple shares and ACDC ETF right beside each other. To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign-up. This podcast is sponsored by Rask Invest. Owen's complete guide to money and investing. Rask Invest members receive Owen's official investment ideas, research on budgets, banking, super and insurance, plus how-to guides to get started. Visit the Rask Finance website to learn more and join today. Hello and thanks for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast, a series exploring the investment philosophies and journeys of some of Australia's leading investors and financial thinkers. I'm Owen Raskovich, founder of The Rask Group. For show notes and other episodes in this series, as well as free educational resources, please visit www.raskfinance.com. Before we go on, it's important to remember the Australian Investors Podcast is provided for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon to make an investment, financial or taxation decision. The information included in this podcast does not take into account your needs, goals or objectives and guests appearing on the show may have a financial interest in some of the products mentioned. Please read all the important disclosure documents and refer to the RASC Group's Financial Services Guide on the RASC Finance website. Chad Slater is the co-founder of Morphic Asset Management, a high-profile Sydney-based hedge fund which invests with an ethical focus. Chad is one of the brightest and most passionate investors I've come across. Chad received top grades at school, spent time at some of the world's best investment firms and now co-leads a team of motivated professionals. But Chad's story isn't all roses. This is an episode I'll be listening to again and again through time. 
because it includes so many profound ideas about money and investing. If you're new to the world of investing in hedge funds, you can visit the Rask Finance website where we've created a free short video series addressing some issues discussed in this and future episodes. Putting aside a few minutes to understand the key terms will mean you get a lot more from this episode. Please enjoy this conversation with Chad Slater, co-founder of Morphic Asset Management. Chad, thanks for joining me on the show. No, thank you. Uh, where we start the show is we go back and we talk about you as a youngster and how you became intertwined in the financial world. So I'm interested to know where you grew up and what ignited that passion for finance and investing. So I grew up in a, a country called Papua New Guinea, which <laughs> you, some of your listeners may be aware of. Uh, an odd choice it would seem. My, my, I, uh, my father was living in New Zealand in 1984 and uh, for any of your listeners who aware of the economies of Australia and New Zealand in the early 1980s, they weren't going very well. Mm-hmm. And he saw an ad in the paper calling for someone who ran supermarkets to move to the highlands of Papua New Guinea. <laughs> in one of his more harebrained moments, he decided to shift his whole family to the highlands of Papua New Guinea. And it got off to an excellent start. He got arrested in the first 24 hours oh, for wow. driving without a <laughs> licence and failing to pay the correct bribe. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> so that's where I grew up and uh, sort of that's where my family was. And um, my parents ran a supermarket up mm. there. And your question was sort of what ignited your passion for business and investing, I suppose it was always there. And that when your dad runs a supermarket and your mum works there as well, and I used to go in every day and help the till. Yep. So it's like a 10 year old, you'd go in and you'd do the end of day accounts. Yep. Uh, you'd go on the banking run with two armed security guards so you didn't get <laughs> robbed. Uh, you'd off- offload the trucks, uh, me not physically, but you'd count it. You'd do a stock check with uh, your parents on the weekends. It's, uh, it's sort of part of your life. It's just who you are. Yeah, well, um, so you were, how old were you at this time when you were working the store? Uh, so I started sort of helping out when I was 10 or 11 around the store. Yeah, right. Um, I was always fairly numerate, yeah. and my dad was originally an accountant, and my mum also did the books as well, so I suppose that's where it came from, your parents. Yeah. Um, so you just do the end of day accounts on tills and bank runs. Um, started doing it when you're 13, 14, 15, uh, yeah. a bit more, but yeah, I started about when I was 11. You get that appreciation for money and business pretty pretty early in life by the sounds of it yeah I, I think it's it's an appreciation for understand like that people you have to earn this and this comes through and what it means to, uh, I first learned about margins and markups mm. uh, it was fairly straightforward back then by the, it's the equivalent of say Woolies or, or Metcash yep. uh, and they used to just mark double the price yeah, well, <laughs> that, was the, that was a fairly simple strategy up there yeah. then um, and uh, and profit margins and you know, understanding what the business is doing. Um, mm. So it's it's hard to intertwine where it comes from because when it's all your family's ever done, yeah, it's yeah. Sort, of, sort of hard to say where it starts. But so when did you so you moved on to high school? Were you still studying over there, or did you come to Australia for that? Or yes, yeah, so I went to boarding school in Queensland. Yep, uh, it's, it's quite kind. There's whilst Papua New Guinea is an amazing place, its mm. education system of high mm-hmm. school is fairly poor. That said, the primary schools then uh, were excellent. They had what were called international schools. So anyone there who's lived as an expatriate in Singapore or Hong Kong, there were a lot of international schools still around. Uh, and okay. fellow expats and you'd say some of the wealthier locals yep. uh, would go there. But then once you go to high school, um, you move on. I went down to, to Brisbane there. Yep. And, and we'd fly home four times a year. Hmm. It was quite difficult for me. Yeah, uh, I was going to say, how would you, you find that? That would have been... Yeah, so I was an eleven-year-old. Yeah, I was an eleven-year-old going to boarding school, uh, two thousand kilometres from home, and uh, you get to see your parents four times a year. Yeah. So it was a pretty big move for my family and that. Um, 
by, you're probably guessing by this point the three years that they went up there for was, had, had become a bit longer. Um, yep. My parents ended up staying up there 20 years in the end. Oh, right. Um, okay. And you saw a lot of changes in the country in that time. Yep. Have you been back since? I proposed to my wife up there, actually. Oh, nice. Um, for, for your listeners, uh, Papua New Guinea is a place that can't really be understood till you go there. Right. Um, I think it's a phenomenal place. Um, 700 of the world's languages are spoken in Papua New Guinea. Huh. There's only 2,800 languages in the whole world. Oh, wow. Um, there you go. It's one of the most diverse, incredible places. Unfortunately, it's a very sad, poor mm. country in other ways. But the people are incredible. They, they love you and then they also murder each other. Mm. Um, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I proposed to my wife up there. Once that's, I haven't been back since, but yep. uh, I'm looking at taking one of my sons up there when he gets a little bit older. He's a little bit too young yet to, yep. to take him up there, but it's an incredible place. Yeah, great. Um, so I suppose through all of this, where did you... So your parents are, you know, run the family business. Were you, when you were boarding school, perhaps you were reading books or taking accounting or... Wh- wh- I mean, you ended up at UQ, if yep. I'm not mistaken, and you studied and did really well, economics, commerce. Um, what pushed you down that road? Yeah, so obviously accounting was part of my life. So once I got to high school, I took an accounting subject mm-hmm. um, and came second on and ducks one year of the club. Oh, well done. Uh, simply because it's part of your life. It's fairly straightforward learning journals, cash flows, ledgers mm. and balance sheets. Um, and But I didn't love accounting. Um, I always wanted to be a pilot. Um, so you, a lot of you, to get anywhere in Papua New Guinea, you've got to fly, basically. Yeah. Okay. Uh, back in the days, you could sit in the front seat next to the pilot. Um, and I still remember sticking my head out when he's asking, is there a gap in the clouds that we can land through? <laughs> um, and then on the sadder sides, like some of our friends' parents were pilots oh. died, crashed up there. Um, oh. And But like, that was what interested me, the maths, yep. so I was doing physics and that side of things. Also, I did accounting, I didn't love it. And I was sort of grappling as I got towards the end of high school, like, what to do mm. um, and I interviewed I was going to become a pilot I, I tried to become a Air Force pilot mm-hmm. um, but I was too young I was 16 huh. so I finished high school when I was 16 yep. um, and it's quite I thought, young yes quite young so I was fortunate enough to have done okay yep. um, and I'm like by this point I, I decided to take finance and that at uni doing accounting not completely enamoured and I started meeting people who were doing the course there as well I'm like I heard of these things called investment banking, hmm. heard yep. of uh, funds management, these, uh, which in Papua New Guinea there's not really <laughs> no, there was accounting and running businesses, but the actual concept that you could professionally manage money without running a business, I wasn't really aware of, probably until I got to university. Hmm. Um, and so I did that, and then I also did some more math side of things and moved into economics and that as well. Uh, and then I met some friends who, I don't know if you have worked with Forager and Steve Johnson's team there. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, one of my good friends, uh, him and Steve worked at the Intelligent Investor. Yeah. Uh, together. Yeah. And he got me into investing. Basically, it was where I brought together my background in accounting and finance and that. And we started doing looking at some stocks. Mm. Uh, and then he went on to write for the Intelligent Investor, and Steve went on to run Forager. Mm. And we started trading. We did a little meet up and and things like that. And investing in a few managed funds, Colonial First State in the yeah. late 1990s. Uh, and bought a few stocks. So yep. that's sort of where it started great. to come together at that point. Yeah, I think it's great when you can pair up with someone like that who shares the passion and it's great. It led you down this path and yeah, what a wonderful decision that was. Yeah, and look, uh, Tim uh, Tim Searles is, is the guy's name. What what I respect about Tim amongst many other things is, and he was one of the uh, best men at my wedding, um, was that he is a more Buffett-style investor. And we can talk a little bit more about investing as we go on, but 
he can respect other people's investing styles. And I think one of the problems in investing is everyone thinks they're right. Mm. Yep. When really there's all shades of right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so him and I agree on a few things and what we like in companies, but we disagree on a few things. But we, funnily enough, we both come around, we both started as value investors, call mm-hmm. us cheapskates, <laughs> um, to a more quality approach. Um, yep. And you learn each other's sort of styles and that as well. And um, I think it's very important to have someone else to learn from a little bit when you're younger. Yeah, I think that's great too that you're not identical, you're not you know, replications of each other. You um, you can probably learn from each other even if you don't agree. It's a great way to prove out a thesis as well. Yeah, oh, awesome. Right? Yeah. Um, so let's fast forward a little bit. You, you've graduated from uni, you've done very well. But then you take a job uh, in Treasury, at Treasury in Canberra, that's is right, that right? Yeah, in Canberra. So. Um, so in the late 1990s, uh, some of your listeners may be aware, but unemployment was about 8%. Hmm. Um, yeah, right. So a boy from Queensland, a boarding school, I was just trying to get whatever job you can get. Let's yep. just be frank about yep. this. I, re- I wanted to work in funds management, but there was only two firms that hired externally for buy-side roles, uh, BT and Colonial. Hmm. I put my name forward for BT and got rejected in the first round. Okay. Um, so I actually rang a friend of a friend and said, who was working there at BT Funds Management, uh, BT's the breeding ground of Ken Nielsen, Paul Moore. Right. A lot of the great fund managers of Australia came yep. out of BT in the 1990s. Um, I said, if this is where I want to go and I didn't get in, how, what's my best chance of trying to get in there another way? And I said, oh, look, I've got a role at Deloitte so I can work for an accounting firm. Or, and or Treasury said, you should take Treasury. Hmm. He goes, you'll get to learn how policy's made, work in the economic side of things. And that macroeconomics will ultimately help make you a better investor mm. rather than just thinking of it from an accounting per se. And to be honest, it's some of the wisest words I've ever received mm. and helped set me on this path. Um, so I took the role, moved, moved down to Canberra, uh, and it was a fascinating year. I worked for Peter Costello uh, doing policy. Um, so it was after 9-11. And so I, w- I was working on defence after 9-11. And the policy we mm. would work on is every team, every division, whether it be health, defence, proposes to spend more money, mm-hmm. yet the ministers don't really know that much about what they're being asked to approve. So you work as like a fire break between yeah, right. the department, who always wants to spend more money, and the ministers who want to spend less money, mm. usually, uh, providing them advice on those sort of things. Or also met my, who's now wife there at the time. Nice. So a lot of people say, oh, I can't stand Canberra. And it's I actually loved my time in yeah, Canberra. Yeah, you did? Yeah. Oh, look, there's... About 3,000 graduates move there each year. Mm. So defence, health, PM&C, all the big departments, mm. all getting paid relatively well, mm. living in a relatively small town, going out. Like, it's a great time. I don't know if I'd live in Canberra for, forever, but I definitely don't regret my time there. It's a nice city, isn't it? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's very convenient to get around, mm. and it's only two and a half hours to Sydney. And um, uh, some friends we were seeing in Paris who were still diplomats, we met from there. Like, mm. it adds in life, I think, to have a diverse group of friends yep. will make you a better person. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, so let's now jump to where you did get a role at BT, if I'm not mistaken. Wasn't yes. It wasn't too long? <laughs> what happened was I decided that I still wanted this role at BT, mm. so I put in for the graduate program for a second year in a row. Okay. Um, this time around, I made it past the first round, <laughs> I got to the second round got rejected the second round this time around. Um, And so I called the HR lady up uh, and said, oh look, can you just give me some feedback as to why you didn't make it for the final rounds? Mm. And they gave me some answers. I said, oh look, I look forward to seeing you next year. She goes, what are you talking about? (laughs) Um, She goes, this is a graduate role. I said, yeah, I'll be applying again next year. She goes, wow, you really want this. Um, Look, I suppose we can slot you in for another one-on-one interview. 
<laughs> and that was basically the beginning of my professional career. Wow. Um, a little bit of luck and doggedness, I think, yeah, coming persistence. together. Um, they flew me up and I had a one-on-one with one of the portfolio managers and we ended up talking for hours on stocks. Hmm. Um, and my very first, and he asked what my learning experience was and I was still not working as a professional investor. And I'd bought a company called Melbourne IT. Oh, wonderful. Um, and Good so decision. Tim, who I mentioned earlier, we, we had done the whole Buffett analysis, you know, it was going to, it's a quality business, had a large moat, except it was overpriced. And we did the whole, let's buy when there's blood on streets. Mm-hmm. And we did in 2000. And then the stock lost 80% of the value. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I had to wait four years for it to turn around. And I was saying to the portfolio manager at the time, he goes, what was your lesson? And I said, well, don't catch falling knives. Mm-hmm. Um, and that helped influence me there. And so I took a role at BT. They put me in the grad program. Mm. Um, I was just very lucky, to be honest. I, 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 I thought I could do the job, but at the end of the day, I think 2,000 people interviewed for five roles. Um, there's a bit of luck, a fair bit of luck involved. Um, yeah. And uh, we, I got put in Japanese equities covering oil refining stocks. Mm. Um, and then BT got sold mm. barely nine months later. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then I'm like, oh, no, here we go again. I'm, not investing anymore. Yeah. So I went to Paul Biddle, who works for Celeste, a uh, small cap Aussie yep. manager here now. And I said, oh, mate, I've got they, they, I've got a three-month contract they've got to pay out, but I'll work for free and just that will fund my... And he goes to the head of equities then, oh, do you mind if this grad joins us for a few months? Um, the, the, all the other grads are getting their pink slips and being sent home. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they said, oh, look, we're going to rotate you out of here. And I begged not to be rotated out. Hmm. Uh, the head of equities then fought HR on my behalf, uh, mm. and I survived a second time. <laughs> and then Crispin Murray, who's now head of equities yep. at BT, uh, or now Pendle here, mm-hmm. came on board and said, oh, look, if anyone wants the job that much, we, we'll keep you on. Yep. So a fair bit of luck and good fortune to get me where I am, but I'd also say some persistence. Yeah, well, they say what's the, the only difference between failure and success is persistence, right? Um, so it's... You know, we, we would be creeping up to this time where you took a secondment overseas, is that right? Yeah, so then I worked doing Aussie equities for two years, uh, yeah. covering stocks you all know, like Woolworths, mm-hmm. Coles, was Coles then, about to be Coles. Yeah, yeah. It's funny how not Again. much actually changes, yeah. and it's about to come Coles back on circle. the market. Um, Coca-Cola and Qantas and these businesses as a young grad. Um, the thing you know, that was stuck in my mind was Crispin was a young PM then, um, mm-hmm. and he's willing to give us a go. Yep. So even though we we're in our early 20s, if he thought we knew what we were talking about, he's willing to back us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that gives you a young person a lot of confidence that their PM is going yeah, to back them. Um, he then came to me uh, two years in and said, oh, look, we've been offered these uh, roles where we can second people to the US. Would you be interested in taking one of these? Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, this would be great to do some more national equities. And I moved to Boston. I lived over in Boston, became a Red Sox supporter mm-hmm. who are now playing in the uh, <laughs> Major League Baseball today actually, in the, uh, in the American League series. Oh, great. Um, <laughs> and uh, a bit of a tragic supporter. Yep. They hadn't won until 04, the year I was there. Oh, right. Um, and Caught on. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a huge year for them. Yeah. And, uh, and I was very nervous and because I'd been told in advance that they only hired Harvard and MIT graduates. Mm-hmm. Boston can be a bit intellectually arrogant. Right. Um, yep. Now, well, look, had some of the best universities in the mm. world there. Yeah. I'm like, oh, my gosh, how am I going to compete against them? I'm just from Queensland. They don't even know where Queensland is. Most of them, most of them think Australia have crocked Dundee. Yeah, yeah. Um, and for me, it was, I think, another defining moment in your career. And it turned out that Australian education system is not that bad. Yeah. Oh, good to know. That, that we actually do learn as much, if not more, than these guys and girls over there. Yeah. Um, and the second thing is it also gives you some confidence in yourself. Mm. 
like to know that if you can compete against them, well, hell, I can compete against anyone. Yeah. Um, so I covered European beverages, uh, looked after companies like Heineken and that. They had about 400 billion of assets when we were, I was over there. Right. So I got to work with all the American teams over there. Yep. And that just helps round out your experience of different people in different sectors. Yeah, well, you've been in Oceania in Australia, then you go to the US and you're investing abroad again from there. That's yep. um, yeah, well-rounded experience, no doubt. Um, okay, so then you've come back to Australia, is that right? Yeah, so I came back, uh, they offered me a role. I said that would be the wrong thing to do would be to take that, given my firm had paid for it. <laughs> uh, but I did say to Chris when I got back, um, I'll give you two years return of service. Yep. As in, but I'd like to go again. But I owe you two years. Mm-hmm. It's the right thing to do. You did the right thing by me. Um, and that came up at the end of 06, beginning of 07. Because mm-hmm. uh, remember, when I went there in 04 to yep. the start of 05. Uh, I resigned and then we lived in South America. Oh, right. Um, what, were, you, were you working or just. Just, just, just lived there. Took, took a sabbatical. And that was another yeah. great experience in one's life. Yeah, where uh, did you live? Lived in Buenos Aires. Oh, nice. Um, and just spent some time off. Um, I think, you know, if you can, sabbaticals or gap years or things are very good for you as a person mm. just to see how other people think. Yeah. Because if we switch back to markets, when you're trading against someone, it's very important to understand why are they selling when I'm buying. Mm. So you need to think how other people think or try to understand what someone else is doing. And then only then can you really disagree with them. Mm. I know what you're doing and I know why you're doing it. You can't always know this, obviously, but mm. you need to have an attempt understanding what the other person's doing. Otherwise, you run the risk that you're the dummy in the trade. Yep. That you're the idiot. And until you can understand why you're not the idiot, well, you should assume you're the idiot. Hmm. Um, so that was good. Lived there and then um, up sticks and interviewed in London, uh, New York and Paris for a few different hedge funds. Mm-hmm. Uh, I decided by this point that my skill set of economics and finance and analysis better suited the hedge fund industry than just pure long onlys. Yeah. Um, uh, Stan Druckenmiller, some people may recall, worked mm-hmm. with George Soros. He had a firm called Duquesne in New York, mm-hmm. who I interviewed with over there. They had a couple of Aussies oh, working cool. over there. Um, Kamyaka Station, which is a large hedge, oh, quasi-hedge fund. Uh, they have about 80 billion of assets in Paris now. They have four Australians working there, <laughs> all XBT people. Um, <laughs> Small world. Yeah, and then uh, Hugh Sloan for Sloan Robson, a long, short hedge fund in, uh, in London. Mm-hmm. Um, and end up taking this Hunter Hall role because, funny thing in life, it loops back. The person who gave me the advice to go to Treasury to end up working at Hunter Hall in London. Oh, right. And he said, look, I'd really like you to come join us. And I knew I liked him. And yeah, James McDonald, who went on to become Deputy CIO of Hunter Hall and mm-hmm. works at Pengana now. Uh, so I joined there and, and that was in moving into a PM role. So I got my first capital to be allocated. Mm-hmm. And I was allocated capital, like I think I got about $100 million to run inside Hunter Hall mm. um, at the sprightly age of 30. I was going to say, how old were you? Yeah. Um, well, wow. I was a young PM. And that was September 2007. <laughs> Perfect time. And from that point <laughs> onwards, I think it went downhill. I think they joked in the office that as soon as I joined, the bear market began. <laughs> That'd be right. So, yeah, it was an interesting time to be in London. Yeah, but I've read before that you've, you actually did quite well all things considered, throughout the GFC. Yeah, it, look, again, luck and time. You'd always like to claim that it's all your own brilliance. Mm-hmm. Um, and look, I clearly did some things okay. Uh, it helped that I didn't have entrenched positions in the firm. Mm-hmm. So one thing, hard thing about investing is when you have to sell an idea to your own firm, you start to believe very deeply mm-hmm. in the idea. And ideas that you believe deeply in are difficult to divorce yourself from. Mm-hmm. Um, the less deeply you're enmeshed in an idea, the easier it is to divorce. But if you're not enmeshed in an idea, you've got no conviction to hold it. 
So like everything investing is a two-edged sword, you need both sides and trying to find the right balance is difficult. So I had no built-in positions, which helped me compared to the other people. Mm-hmm. But I also had learned from a number of people in different things called stop losses, yep. which are not traditionally used in long-only firms. Mm-hmm. So as I entered a few positions, I was stopped out. And as the GFC got worse and worse, my cash balance just kept increasing through time. Mm. Um, so as a result, like my cash pool my, that I was running for the firm actually fell less than 10 or 15%. Mm. Simply because when you start sticking in cash, it's very difficult to lose too much money. Yeah, um, yeah It was a pretty horrendous time in London. I don't think Australians appreciate mm. how bad it actually was here, over there compared to here. Um, at least half my friends lost their jobs. Right. Um, so they arrive, because they're Australians usually working yep. in London, first person you cut's the easiest one to cut. Yep. Yep. He's not uh, going to be here for long, let's get rid of him now. He's got yep. no family, we'll send yep. him home to Australia. Yep. Um, there was talk at one point amongst people, the banks would run, there was a, uh, mm-hmm. a run on nor- um, Northern Rock, banks mm-hmm. would run out of money, mm-hmm. uh, food would no be on, on no Tesco shelves. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was a very quick decline from oligarchs and Ferraris at the start of 07 <laughs> to no food on the shelves yeah. by the middle of 08. Um, but the hard thing I think is in investing, and this relates to the GFC, mm. is a lot of investors are broken clocks. Mm. That is, a clock that doesn't work right twice a day. Mm-hmm. Um, as if I was making money in the bear market, was how when do I get back to being invested? Mm. That was the difficult question I grappled with. Uh, at some point, assuming we didn't end up, uh, you know, scratching in the cave uh, and the civilization didn't exist. And that was the hard thing, trying to find when to get bullish. And I got it wrong in October. Right. I, I bought too early. Yeah. Got stopped back out. Good thing about stop losses <laughs> is they te- And then we had to go in June the following year of 09. So I was about four months too late. Right. But that was the thing. We got back to being invested in our sleeve, Jack and myself, because he's running, he running about 500 million. I was yep. running about 100 million at that point. This is your co-founder. Yep. Yep. And that's the difficult part, is to know when you, are, when you should go from one to the other. Mm. So obviously we'll talk later, but the difficult part is now when to go from being invested to not being invested in the future. Yeah, it's a very very tricky part. So would you say that one of the key learnings from that experience was, I suppose, using stop losses, such a simple thing, oh. knowing when to walk away or just setting it. Yes, yep. well, I think absolutely. If if your listeners can take one thing out of it, is a simple process mm. can trump the most convoluted, deeply researched anything you want in the world. And if you mm. stick to your rules, it will serve you well. Well thought, um, because we have a saying here, and is that how do you know when you're wrong and when you're early? Mm. They look the same. Yep. You've lost money. You can only ever know in hindsight, after the fact, which one was which. Mm. So if your stock's gone down 30 or 40%, are you early or wrong? Mm. Now, nearly everyone, when they're down 30%, thinks they're early. Mm. They do. Only when they lose 60 or 70% do they realize they're wrong. And that's one of the things, right, about stop losses is you can, it's not, it doesn't mean that you stop following the business. You can keep following it. Yes. Yeah, there's nothing to say that. You just don't have any skin in the game while it's falling. And, and we, we have a saying here as well, knowledge doesn't die. Yep. Yep. Like, is it, yep. It, it's before. still there. It's and we have a cooling off period that we've implemented here. Is I'm yet to see someone get stopped out of a stock basically and go, you know what, that was a really dumb idea that I bought. Mm. Nearly okay. always they're adamant that it's just going to turn around tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Like a gambler with his last round of cash throwing it at there. And, but what we, the easy bit's getting stopped out in hindsight. Yeah. The hard bit is, again, coming, when do you go back in? Mm. Like when, when, is it long, when is it right time to re-enter this position? Mm. Um, so the, the difficult thing we say is, and 
uh, there's a great blog called Epsilon Theory, mm-hmm. uh, and it's called and they wrote a piece called Always Go to a Funeral. Okay. Now talking about life, that <laughs> funerals are a very important uh, way of commemorating a life. Mm-hmm. But you can have two, funerals can be a sad occasion, or they can also be a happy occasion in some mm-hmm. respects. Uh, yeah. Think of a, a drunken eulogy, Irish sort of <laughs> celebration wake. Yeah. Um, so when you get stopped out or you sell a stock, you can be selling a stock for a profit as well. Mm. You should write up what did you learn and when would you go back. Mm. So if you've made 40% or 50 or doubled your money and you think it's overvalued, put a price target down, set it in Comsec or whoever you're using, and if it goes back there, revisit the idea. Mm. And conversely, if it's gone down but then comes back up a little bit and things are looking okay, revisit the idea. Mm. Now, the other... We've got lots of sayings here. They're good little mental <laughs> shortcuts to they remember are. things. Is Don't have strongly held views. Have loosely held views, but that you're happy to change. Mm. Like right. the, the, as in strongly held views are difficult to separate yep. you from. Yeah, as you said earlier. Um, okay, well, we're, we're kind of getting there anyway, but let's um, jump into the business today. Um, why you decided to start Morphic and... It was, was it just the two of you in the beginning, you and Jack? Or? So uh, the idea was originally two of us. So Jack was Deputy CI at Hunter Hall. Mm-hmm. And um, my background in economics, I was in charge of macroeconomics and the hedging book for the portfolio. A couple of billion dollars of portfolio had to be mm-hmm. hedged out, yep. uh, FX. Um, and you know, with Jack as Deputy CI, I'm also in our sen- like quasi-senior roles and that. We, you know, we had a lot of interaction about uh, what do we do on this, what do we do on that. Mm-hmm. And he approached me in late 2011 and said, look, I'm 55. Um, I've got it as in, I think we can do some things different to what we do here. I think we can do some things that we do well, but you know, mm. this is my opportunity to have a go. And I'm like, well, I've got some ideas too. But mm. <laughs> how, because stop losses weren't really official policy at Hunter Hall, for example. They're not okay. official policy at most long only firms. Yeah. Um, but we knew if we were going to be, be more like that, we needed to hire someone that had more of a hedge fund background. Uh, we thought long shorts become more important going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, the industry dynamics are changing, as we could talk if you want about that, but long only investing is becoming a lower fee business and people yep. want more pure, we call pure alpha. Yep. Um, and long short gives you more pure alpha. Mm. But we had no experience. Yeah, I was going to say, were you short? So you weren't shorting up until. No, it was this. cash only. We, right. we, uh, Hunter yep. Hall was a long only firm. Yep. Okay, um, not even in your personal account, nothing? No, no. Uh, is in, yes, a little bit in my personal account uh, previously. But that was an experience, uh, again, there's some experiences there. Okay. Shorting is a, a very different skill set. Mm. Uh, and I learned that the hard way personally as well. So we took those insights into uh, the investment firm. We hired Jeff Wood, our yep. head of macro and risk. Um, probably the best hire I've ever made in my life. Right. Um, Jeff uh, is a phenomenal individual. Mm. Um, he was working uh, at a global macro firm called GTS. Mm-hmm. Global macro is where you use uh, foreign exchange and rates and that to say whether okay, Thailand might be a good investment mm. or Korea is going up or Korea is going down. You're not choosing stocks, you're choosing countries yep. basically. Um, and that skill set we thought in the hedge fund background would suit well. We knew how to pick stocks. With We think we know how to pick stocks. Mm. It's the other part that we were short of skills. Yep. Uh, and I think a good part, is one of the big part, big lesson in investing is know what you don't know. Mm. Um, no one can be everything. Yep. Yeah, that's great. And if you if you have a fair idea of what you can't do, you can substitute other people for that. You don't need to try and become that person. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, again, we haven't really talked about Buffett, and I'm not really a Buffett-style investor, but I've got a lot of respect mm. uh, for what him and Munger have achieved. Munger's greatest quote, and I think my friend Tim would, uh, is adamant that Munger's actually the brains behind the mm-hmm. two of them. Um, 
is your circle of competency. Mm-hmm. Um, you might have had other investors talk about it. Yep. Circle of competency is know what you can and can't do. And Mungus believes that his great success is they know what their circle of competency is. Mm. Uh, for your listeners, understand what you can do and what you can't do. And be, it, one of the hardest things is you're always looking for new ideas. We can talk about that in a sec. But mm. knowing when not to stray, or basically you should never stray outside your circle mm. of competency, but knowing what your circle of competency is will help be, you be a better investor. So that's why we've got Jeff on board, the three of us. Uh, and then we've added some analysts over time. James, our head of research, so there's now 11 of us. Mm. It seems like a great mix of skill sets. And just on your point about circle of competence, I think a good analogy is like if you have the circle, you imagine the circle, and then you overlay them, but they're slightly shifted in, in, in different you know angles, and you can really pad out that circle of competence or widen it a little bit, but not too yeah. far that you're, yep. you're coming up with the wrong ideas. Um, that's great. So how did you so how did you fund the business? How did you just, you know, it's a pretty bold move to have a pretty good job and just go out and go on your own. Yes, it's the we, we promised uh, our staff the uh, uh, chance of some success highly unlikely. <laughs> You'll be underpaid. <laughs> yeah. um, it wasn't a very good sales pitch, but we still really got a few. Yeah. Um, look, I, I actually meet with probably someone once every couple of months who gets asked, "I'm thinking about doing this," mm-hmm. and I say to them, "Don't do it." Right. My advice is because it's a very unsatisfying and unrewarding path in many respects. You're giving mm-hmm. up. So. People in the industry are fairly well paid. Yep. Some may even argue overpaid. Mm-hmm. They're, they're definitely not underpaid. Mm-hmm. Um, you're giving away, you're not exactly, you're risking a lot. So you really truly need to believe that you can do something different. Because mm. the world's got plenty of fund managers. Mm. But you, if you can do something different, we felt we had something to, to offer the funds management world. Whether our clients believe that or not is another matter. Mm. Uh, but we think we've got enough clients who believe it. Um, so we were funded by some clients from Hunter Hall mm-hmm. um, who had, had a large amount of money of Hunter Hall uh, and they would transfer some money over to start it. Um, and we're also funded by some high net worth for the actual the working capital cost of the business okay. like paying office rent, yep. Bloomberg terminals, etc. Mm-hmm. the cost of running a business. Mm-hmm. Um, and they took a stake in the business in, in return for that. Oh, right. Okay. And they're still on today? So we, most of them sold out to Westpac um, in 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, so Westpac... Uh, owned uh, or owns a third of us, oh, okay. um, but that has just been sold in the last week to a new owner. Okay. Um, so, funnily enough, the, back to BT, Rob Coombe, <laughs> who used to be my boss at BT. Oh right. Actually, okay. now owns the business called Asclon, which has all the stakes yep. in their boutiques. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, what? Well, uh, don't burn your bridges because you never <laughs> know when you need to use them again. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's proof in the pudding. Um, okay, so. From a high levels perspective, um, running long short, um, can you explain to us, I suppose for some listeners who may not be acutely aware, the mechanics of shorting, um, and potentially for my benefit as well, how, how you approach that shorting and as well as the long side, what you're looking for from a high level? Okay, so my first piece of advice to the listeners is shorting, don't do it. Yep. <laughs> okay. Uh, the, one of the oddities of shorting is shorting by itself is very risky. Mm. But when shorting is added to a long portfolio, it reduces the overall risk of the portfolio. Mm. Um, so it's this paradox mm-hmm. that shorting makes for a lower risk portfolio, but shorting by itself is quite mm. risky. Mm. Um, so you need a lot of rules and structure around it. And we wrote a piece for our investors on our website about introduction to shorting, which hopefully can give a better and fuller explanation than this. Is think of it this way. The rough rule of thumb in investing is you should make more out of your winners then you lose and you lose this. And mm. if you do that often enough, you make money. Mm-hmm. That's like 101 of investing. Yep. If you do nothing, if you put $100 into two stocks, 
and your winner goes to $200 and your loser goes to $50, you now have four times as much money in your winning calls than you do in your losing call. Mm -hmm. Your portfolio is naturally rebalanced towards having more money in winning calls. Mm -hmm. So you're doing a good behavioral thing by being lazy. Mm -hmm. So like that's a good that's outcome. That's a great way to put it. Yeah, yeah. It's a, now think of it as you put 100 into shorting a stock, uh, or two stocks. One of them, the successful short, goes to 50. The unsuccessful short goes to 200. Mm -hmm. You now have four times as much money in your, your unsuccessful <laughs> short. So you, if you keep going like this, your unsuccessful short will be four hundred dollars in a mm -hmm. year's time, and the other one will be two. So you add the eighty you made there plus the three hundred you lost there, and you'll be down on it. So even though you did nothing wrong, mm -hmm. you had you got them both right, and they both moved in the same percentages. So the problem with shorting is it's a high touch thing. You can't leave mm -hmm. shorts alone, um, and this I think is a role for professionals. I'm, I'm sorry to say, yeah. I, either that or if you're going to commit to it, it's a job. Yeah, and I agree wholeheartedly oh, with you. Um, yeah. you. Whereas I think long-term investing can actually be done quasi. So patience is a good skill. Mm. And working full-time can be bad for patience because there's an expectation mm -hmm. that you come to work every day and do something. Mm. Output needs to be produced. What are you producing? Uh, I often say you know, going to the beach for a month for your staff might actually be the best thing for them. Mm. So for your listeners, patience is a, is a great advantage that they have over the professionals. Mm. Now professionals have other advantages but they should use that patients will not serve you well in shorting mm. I'm interested actually while we're on the topic to talk about what you think is the edge that you have here at Morphic uh, a question you should always ask a portfolio manager and one that can never really be quantified mm. what I think our edge is is you talked about a few circles of competency mm -hmm. we bring together a couple of circles that don't often overlap mm -hmm. and what I mean by that is the industry is split into silos Think of grain silos. They're side by side. They contain the same grain. They don't have, interact with each other. <laughs> Think of an equity bottom-up stock picker, um, whether it be someone for petrol, PM Capital, or Keynil. They say, we choose great stocks, but we don't really think about the macro. And then you, So that's all they do. Mm -hmm. Then you think of someone, or Magellan's a better example than Care, um, global macro firm. We choose countries, but we don't do stocks. Mm. What do you think drives the earnings at the aggregate of all the companies macro does. Mm. I do not believe that you can have a view on stocks and not actually have an understanding of macro. But most people, so even JB Hi-Fi, Aussie retail sales will be a big determinant, you know, or Woolworths, ultimately of where they go. Now there is market share shifts that can change, but the biggest, or BHP, mm -hmm. Chinese growth is gonna yep. be the biggest determinant. But how can you not have views on these things? Mm. But you're probably the least qualified person as a stock picker to have that view. Mm. Just, but the macro person shouldn't have a view on a stock because they don't know. Like, so we've tried to bring two silos together, but how you bring them together is they're very different personalities, mm. they're different types of people, and to mesh them into a portfolio. And our ideal stock is where James, my head of research, is going, you know, I love this company in Japan. It's cheap, it's growing, everything about it's good. And Jeff, my head of macro, goes, you know, the macroeconomic outlook for Japan is excellent at the moment. I have a double tick. Yep. My two sides, whether they like it or not, are agreeing on the same thing. Mm -hmm. So I think our edge is that we bring these things together into an enmeshed process that's quite rare. Mm. I should add that Jeff's got some great stuff on your website as well, some high level stuff that anyone can access and just have a read. It's really good stuff. That, that, that's, that's great. It's a really succinct answer. I like oh, the analogy. <laughs> um, okay, so not only are you long short, you've also got um, an ethical focus. Um, Ethics can be quite controversial at times. Can you explain how you perceive the role of ethics in 
um, and, and its role, I suppose, in in business. And and one one angle that I'm particularly keen to understand is how you can use that to benefit investing model businesses themselves yeah um, so obviously we worked at Hunter Hall which was Australia's leading ethical investor global equity equities ethical investor mm. um, so we, uh, we had a lot of experience working in the space um, when we first left we didn't formally adopt the phrase we thought moving long short was was a big enough move yep. um, but you know you, you are you are a, you are a product of, uh, of where you live and, and what you've done mm. and just in the same way, I'm a, pro, I'm a product of Hunter Hall, which is we never bought any tobacco stocks mm. when we started here. We, we've never really owned any alcohol stocks. Like it's, uh, like it's just not – so it was always there, but we didn't brand. And then we started going with the branding and the LIC and that. And I think the really key thing is there's, there's two parts. There's your values and then there's value. Hmm. Okay. Your values are your beliefs. So uh, if you're a um, – uh, someone – of Catholic faith, mm-hmm. you're, that has certain belief systems associated with it. Mm-hmm. So the most obvious ones are your religion. Are you, no, your values are your values. You can, who am I to tell you who your values are, as long as they're legal? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't have to be religion. It can also be uh, things like the RSPCA. I do know of an eth- ethical fund run for RSPCA. You can guess what their values mm-hmm. are. Yeah. Animal testing is the biggest thing they care about. Mm-hmm. And I think often it's lost between your values and the value that's added from doing ethically investing. And the values are largely determined by what my clients want. Mm -hmm. Um, I happen to share their values largely. Mm -hmm. Um, And they are what you call your negative screens. Mm -hmm. So they're things that we say to our clients, we won't own these. But value is about buying businesses that do the right thing. Mm -hmm. So I I think that we can make more money out of companies that aren't pricks. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And Buffett is not really an ethical investor. He owns Coca-Cola. A lot of people consider Coca-Cola unethical. Mm-hmm. Um, but quality management, it turns out, if you treat your staff well and treat your customers well and that, and you have a culture uh, of openness and not bigotry, and so on, those businesses actually perform better. Mm. Um, that's value. That's adding value to your clients mm. rather than their values. So we try to mesh, again, the two things together, is that, we have we don't own coal companies, for example. Our mm-hmm. clients don't want us to own those. Now that's not passing judgment on it. That's their choice. Yep. They don't have to. As in, we feel of this eight thousand remaining stocks in the world, there's plenty of choice mm-hmm. in those eight thousand for us to do things that don't betray their beliefs. Um, I think that gets lost by a lot of people. Uh, I grew up in Queensland, as we talked about. Quite a few mining engineers mm-hmm. and my cohort of friends who are happy after a few beers to tell me, "Well, mate, <laughs> I work in a coal mine." How do you live with yourself? Then I'm like, because that's what they want. It's like turning up in a restaurant and someone's saying, I want this salad served this way. You're the restaurateur. Whether you like the salad served that way or not, it's not really... Now, I don't have a problem with their values, by the way. Yep. I think cluster ammunitions uh, and, and nuclear are not particularly nice things to do, and I'm happy not to own them. Yep. Um, so we then try to incorporate what we do in ESG audit which is ESG stands for environmental, social, and governance. So mm-hmm. it's more of a holistic approach than just what you'd call ethical. Uh, and you're trying to find and tease out, is this company really doing what they say? Mm. So we look for board diversity. Why does board diversity matter? Uh, this question I think should be asked. Uh, it matters because sh- teams with diverse people make better decisions than individuals. Mm. Uh, there's a book called Super Forecasters. Mm-hmm. I strongly recommend your mm-hmm. listeners to read it if they haven't already read it. And it shows how teams trump people. 
Mm. So teams that reach better decisions than individuals do. Um, diverse teams reach better decisions than mono uh, homogeneous teams, mm. monoculture teams. So, and adding females has been shown the biggest single way to increase diverse cognitive diversity in a, in a team. So, it just is what it is. Mm. It's not my belief. It's in they're your beliefs you might want to have that it'd be good to have more females. It simply is that they make better returns from doing mm. it this way. Through to um, things such as uh, zero class shares, mm -hmm. um, Facebook, for example, if your yep. clients along that, you don't have the same voting rights as Mark Zuckerberg. Mm. Now, you may be happy with that, but I think that's personally a, a, an orange flag. Mm. Um, because why? Because having worked through GFC, when things go bad, they'll look after number one, mm. and you're not number one. So these are, these are how we incorporate it into understanding. Let's not get caught when the tide goes out with people who don't share our beliefs and then don't put us first, mm. don't put shareholders first. These are some of the ways that we look for that. Okay, can I, can I just throw a hypothetical? Yep. Let's say a company like Woolworths, uh, when we're recording this, it's got a, a liquor business. Would that pass or that fail that filter? So we, how we go through the values filter is we can't own alcohol stocks. Yep. So clearly Diageo, fairly straightforward yep. uh, or a liquor uh, supplier then we have the so that's the black area yep. then you have the grey area uh, and Woolworths is classic grey area we have a percentage of revenue test okay um, and we're set at 20% of revenue right um, and Woolworths will be through that because uh, mm. also distributes tobacco yep um, so the, there are a number of businesses that will not whose sole business is not okay. uh, and look all the time we have this discussion mm. clients uh, I, I always get asked, well, what about this one or what about this mm. one? Um, generally, the view is clients just want to know that you're trying to do the right thing. Um, and we'll have debates with our clients and say, this is why we felt this. Uh, we, we were along a company that made energy drinks. Mm. Now, energy drinks are not illegal. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't the main part of their business. Um, it's not in our negative screens. Mm -hmm. There's nothing, like, it's not an unethical thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, but some clients don't agree with that. We said, all those things plus it's less than 10% of the business we don't think we think it's a good investment mm. our clients will and usually the client will, will debate it out uh, and if they don't just, if they don't agree they don't agree but the clients will know there's a process mm. that, that your values or their values because that's who I'm investing on behalf of uh, have been correctly reflected in the portfolio that seems reasonable another point of this is um, I, I read a piece and I'll link to it in the show notes where you were quoted in the AFR talking about AMP embattled financial services business that had a few things recently come out about it that weren't so good from a governance perspective. Um, where do you stand on uh, investors being more proactive or active um, when it comes to these issues? Oh, I think we we have a fairly staunch stance on this and this is becoming more popular overseas and I'd like to see more of it in Australia. It's called engagement mm -hmm. um, or active ownership. Uh, in a world where there's more passive money, mm. Passive, by its very definition, doesn't have a say on anything. Mm. Um, because uh, the management knows what's the passive manager going to do if they don't like it. What they can do? Sell your shares? No, they can't. Mm. They have to own your shares. So you can completely disregard their views. I think the onus is actually going up on a active equity managers to be more engaged and to be vocal. Mm. Um, now, the reason why I, we, I, as discussed, I came back to Australia from London. Australia's a bit of a cosy shop. That most CEOs went to school with the investors mm -hmm. and they, their friends and wives know each other and it's an awkward conversation they'd rather not have. Mm. And what um, do they get out of it if 
you know, if it doesn't work out for them. Yeah, um, and usually you're looking for a job somewhere else they yep. are, and they usually pop up somewhere else inside mm. the industry, and that's one of the things I don't like so much about Australia. Good or bad things I do like about Australia, but, and you know, this team's a little bit of an outsider's team. I came back from London, Jess, English, James is English, Irene's Greek, Nadim's from Fiji, and, but we think our primary responsibility is not to whether uh, my wife's friends are unhappy with what she's saying on the TV, or I'm saying on TV, mm. is, is to our, our shareholders and to our investors. So we try usually to engage quietly, but okay. if it doesn't work out, we don't mind publicising our thoughts, mm-hmm. even if that be leaves us on the outer. Mm-hmm. And I think our investors should expect more from the industry funds in particular, who don't seem willing to push, mm. who do a lot of talk about engagement. And industry funds have done a great job. This is not mm-hmm. There's a lot of talk about things, but the industry funds are very worried they're going to lose access to management. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, yes, that's my view. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fair enough. I- here um okay so we've talked about the ethical side let's talk more about the process how do you deal we've been through one of the filters which is obviously that ethical filter how do you get down from those thousands of companies to a more manageable list so we use a series of quant screens and quant models um uh which you you put in parameters Mm -hmm. of what you're looking for uh there are things called factors uh, mm-hmm. And they're becoming more popular, and your your mm-hmm. listeners may hear more about them if they haven't already. Um, think of factors a little bit as like uh, when you eat bread or pasta. To you, it's bread or pasta. To your body, it's carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. Um, factors are like this secondary thing that exists inside a stock. You think you might be buying Qantas, but you're actually buying a series of factors like carbohydrates and protein. Mm-hmm. Um, and we like the factors of value. So a value is a factor, mm-hmm. uh, so we're value investors. Um, the thing that separates us is we like momentum. Mm. Momentum can be thought of as trend investing, mm-hmm. or we like to know things are going up. And why do we like that so much? Because what, funnily enough, investing is very much about who you are in mm-hmm. the DNA. Some people are optimists. Now, I'm not an optimist, I'm, I'm a pragmatist, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, optimists tend to be growth investors. Contrarians, if you say it's white, they want to say it's black. Mm-hmm. Then you say it's black, they'll say it's white. Mm-hmm. Um, I value investors nearly always. Both of them have great strengths. Um, the issue with the growth investor is he hangs around the party too long and the growth stops. And the, there's a joke in markets that you go up on the escalator and down on the elevator. Mm-hmm. Um, and he gives up a lot of his returns he's hung around too long. Mm-hmm. So momentum served him well and he lost it. Value guys' problem is they buy too early. Mm. So what you do, and this is AQR, which is a big US mm-hmm. quant funds insight, which is remarkable, said, why don't we take the best bits of growth investing, which is momentum, and the best bits of value, which is buying cheap stocks, and stick them together and see how it goes. Turns out it works fabulously. Mm-hmm. Um, it works in every country, in every region, basically, mm-hmm. uh, and pretty much over all time periods. Not all time periods, but a lot of time periods. Okay. Um, that was the, one of the insights that, is that to try and take a more quantitative approach. So we use these things. We get our list down to about 100 names, 200 names. That's more than enough to find mm. 30 stocks out of. Yeah. So how long, what's your typical holding period? So again, because we're a long short funds, things are different. Mm. Um, you cannot take a long model and flip it to a short model. Mm. For all the reasons we talked about, the, the patient serves you well in the long term. So our longs and our shorts have to be thought of separately. Mm. So our longs, we can own two, three, four years. We've only been going five. But because we use stop losses, you have a, a shorter time period than yet. Because at some point, if I lose a certain amount of money, I'm gonna get out of it. You can't have a super long 
uh, holding period and have a risk-based policy at the same time. Mm. It, they just don't coexist. Yeah. Um, but on a short, it, it's three, four, six months. Shorts are like in, out, in, out. It's v- Again, this is why it probably doesn't suit people who aren't working full-time. Because mm. ma- you think of it, the most you can ever make on a short is 100%. Mm. And that would be finding a company that goes to zero. There's not actually that many of them. Mm. Um, so realistically, you make 20 to 40%. That's a great outcome on a short. Mm. The key is to do that four times. Mm. Then you've made 160%. Mm-hmm. But it requires a lot more management of the position. And also if it goes against you, because it's getting bigger in your portfolio. So what I'm saying is our short holding period is somewhere between three to 12 weeks. Okay. Um, so you're looking for catalysts? Nearly always catalysts. Yeah. Like, it's pretty hard to like, have, you need to, because stocks basically go up over time, again, patience serves you well. Mm-hmm. If nothing happens, stocks tend to drift higher. Mm. So you nearly always need a catalyst. Like you've got to know there's an earnings, a corporate day, a, a competitor reporting, something. Because stocks just don't just come in one day and decide to go down normally. Can you give us an example maybe that might em- uh, emphasise that catalyst and maybe go with a successful one? <laughs> yeah, go with a successful one. Uh, we'll do one that we've been in the press a lot for. Okay. Uh, is we've been short platinum asset management. Yep. Um, and since everyone knows the stock as well, mm-hmm. um, I've got nothing against Keir Nielsen. And this is the other thing about shorting. I think too, people, too many people take it personally. Now, in Keir's case, obviously he should because <laughs> he's the founder of the business. But if you're the CEO of the business... Well, we say to people that we're short their stock. We do try to meet with people who are short. Why would I do this, by the way? We're one of the few hedge funds in the world to do this. Mm. Um, it's because what if I'm wrong? Mm. What if I'm, like, let's just mm. say I'm completely wrong here. Like, unless you should go and speak with them. Now, I've chatted to people who run long short funds and they go, oh, look, all they're going to do is feed you lies. I'm like, no, the burden of proof is on me to figure out what's a lie and what's not a lie. Mm. Um, mm. And if you're wrong, you need to figure that out early because you're going to lose a lot of money if you're wrong. Um, so we always say to them, if they, why should I meet with a shorter? And I say, look, I don't have a problem with you. I have a problem with your share price. <laughs> Which means if I have a problem with your share price, I have a, sh- I have a problem with the other investors, mm. not you. If your share price goes down 30%, we no longer have a problem. Mm. Um, I just think your business yeah. is overvalued. That's not the same as I dislike you. or um, and This is perhaps the economist part of me. The, the, it's not a, whereas I think people get fake very emotionally. It's very difficult to pull the two apart. Mm. So in Platinum's case... Uh, we thought the business was in outflows. Uh, and one thing about funds management is outflows tend to beget more outflows. Mm. Um, so it has what's persistency, it's called. So it means a stock's more likely to go down. Mm-hmm. Um, we knew that they had their AGM coming up, and you normally update coming into an AGM. Uh, so we'd build a short position, it rallied against us. Uh, and then the company accounts came out, as well as discussing the AGM date. It was clear that they were miles off track. Uh, and the stock dropped quite precipitously. And then it became quite public knowledge because it was in our top 10 holdings. And then CARE launched a, a classic counterattack against us, unbeknownst at the time that we'd already covered our short. <laughs> and so the stock rallies back as you, quite viciously, rallied 40-odd percent, mm. uh, as he announced that he'd do a share buyback, which we then shorted more stock after the rally. <laughs> and this is the nature of shorting. Yep. And then we covered again when it went back down. Um, so it's a... It's a bit of a trench warfare. Mm. But Care has been was very good through the whole process. Like, oh, right. Uh, he was like, we short stocks. So the fact that some people have chosen to short our stocks should not surprise us. Mm. The AGM, he had some irate shareholders. And Care's like, if I want to short stocks, I've got to be open to the idea that people might want to short me. Mm. He's a f- and again, Care's a fabulous investor. He worked at BT years ahead of me. People mm. still speak about the time when he was there. He's an amazing investor, mm. uh, incredible investor. And, and his legacy of building a, a, a huge business in Australia will live on for many years, hopefully. But... 
that didn't mean stock wasn't overvalued. Yeah. Right. There's that, that value principle that you spoke yeah. of. Speaking of value, a terrific post on the Morphix site was um, it asked, is value investing dead? And we've, we've heard the debate <laughs> a few times. Um, but you made some interesting points. And um, I think maybe just to frame it, frame this conversation, um, just for listeners who are unaware, maybe you can um, explain what we mean by growth versus value stocks. Yeah, so and it's, a, it's a very good question for, you, for your listeners because um, they hear the phrases band and round. Mm. Um, there's basically three metrics that you use on each side. Um, price to book, so it's the value on the stock exchange versus what the assets are marked at in mm-hmm. the accounts is one metric. Um, so PE can be used, but it's got to be, it's got to be used usually in conjunction with price to book. Um, mm-hmm. So value stocks have lowish PBs and PEs, so numbers I might choose might be less than two times price to book and a PE of less than 15, mm-hmm. something along those lines. Growth investors, on the other hand, have relatively high PE, and they're paying high PEs because they be, believe these businesses are going to grow fast, mm. whether it be Cochlear, CSL, some of the great success stories of Australia. Um, and, and, and the other value guys believe the businesses are not as broken as people think they are. Mm-hmm. And so they sort around in the trash, if you want to think of it that way. The key to a good value investor is to not find trash in the trash. Mm-hmm. Key to a good growth investor is to not overpay for a business that's actually not growing. And again, I'd like to just emphasize for your listeners, there's no right way to make money. Don't feel the need to turn up in Omaha if it's not who you are. Mm. Like, um, you can't be him, he is who he is. But what you can be is you. Uh, you can't be anyone else because they're already taken. <laughs> um, and you is a combination of different traits. It will be you getting optimistic on certain days, you wanting to cry or get pessimistic or get angry on certain things or stuff like that. And you need to harness those behaviors for the best outcomes for you. That means doing less of what you do badly, which might be getting angry and buying shares or conversely selling them on the lows and adjusting to that. And I just want to feel I need to add that yeah. in there because if you're listening, that's how you become a better investor. Mm-hmm. Understand who you are. If you can't know yourself, you're never going to win. Mm-hmm. And if you try to copy people, you're never going to win either. But you can win by being who you are. And so growth people, some people, some of your listeners will be growth and some will be value. Mm. There's nothing right or wrong. Like, it's just who you are. Where it goes wrong is trying to turn a value investor into a growth mm-hmm. investor or a growth investor into a value investor. Um, now, the big problem is, in the last five years, growth has trumped value. So these high-growing, sexy stocks like Cochlear and that have made investors a lot of money, and the Telstra's, Telstra's a classic value stock, has lost a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a feeling that value is never, ever going to come back mm-hmm. because it's now given up the better part of 20 years of performance. So over the long run, why do you make money out of value? If you're buying crappy businesses or poor businesses, why do you make money? Basically, no one wants to be an outlier. No one wants to be the hated guy in the room. So you get paid a premium to be disliked, basically, if you <laughs> want to think of it that way. Um, and that premium more than rewarded you for the dodginess of some of the stocks. Um, it appears at the moment these stocks are broken. They're just not growing anymore. Mm. So that's why I wrote, is, is value investing dead? Because Buffett and Graham originally, who was the classic old school uh, value investors, uh, and that's where Buffett started, could this 60 or 80 years of value not work anymore? Mm. Um, and the jury's out. I, I put some opinions in there and about what value might need to adapt. Um, the biggest single conclusion, and it's an open conclusion, mm-hmm. is globalization and the movement to apps, etc., might have actually changed market structures globally. Mm. Where you moves previously, 
you never really had one auto company dominating the world or an auto parts or whatever. They would, it, it, running a company at a certain size becomes too complex and too large. GE, there's yep. a classic one going backwards. Yeah. Um, the complexity, so you don't have what's called an economics, and by the way, this is why economics is so good to help you frame mm-hmm. stocks. Um, you don't have what's called economies of scope and scale. You have some economies of scale to a certain size, but there's no economies of scope, which is as you move to different divisions, you can't translate the ideas across all the divisions mm-hmm. because the complexity goes up. It appears that Facebook and Netflix, and these are different businesses, because you don't need to build another factory. Mm that selling another ad is cost you nothing, basically. Mm. So there appears to be very like limitless economies to scale there. And scope seems to be not so much of an issue there, where you buy WhatsApp or Instagram, and it doesn't relate directly to your business, but you're able to feed them in and cross-monetize. Mm. Has this completely changed capitalism? Um, at the moment, it looks like it, but I would be wary of reaching a firm conclusion on that, given you shouldn't bet against 100 years of data. Yeah, four most dangerous words in investing, yep. right? Um, yeah, I think that's a great post, and I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes. Um, your three key takeaways to um, summarise them were uh, be prepared for a long winter, this is for value investing, um, be open to adapting and avoid junk. Yes, so that was one of the other great insights. Um, again, I always try to read widely. I advise mm. read things you don't agree with. One of the biggest problems on the internet now is people read things that they agree with only. Mm. So I think mm. you know my lessons as investors. I have a group of friends who range from extreme bears to bulls, mm. and it, most of them don't change. They are who they are. Mm-hmm. But you got to figure out when to listen to each one. Yep. And so we're reading some people, value investors, who have got a more quantitative approach than us. And their interesting point was that junk. So when I said going through the trash, mm. um, is that if you junk inside that, so there's cheap stocks and there's cheap stocks which are rubbish. Mm. You could argue that Telstra looks like a bit like that. Um, I don't don't have a personal opinion on it, but they're called value traps. Mm. You make most of your money by not choosing great value stocks, but by staying away from bad value stocks. Mm. So there's the other thing I'd like for your listeners to remember is that what you don't do is almost as important as what you do Mm. do. Mm. Um, And very few people focus on what they don't do, Mm. as in your choices that you don't invest in can define you more than the choices of what you do invest in. So that's what I meant by stay away from junk. Yeah, it's a great point. Um, seeing that we're on the, we've been talking about Buffett and Among Us the whole time. Buffett's rules: don't lose money. That's rule number one. Number two: don't forget <laughs> yeah. rule number one. But um, another one is uh, Among a classic is um, instead of seeking brilliance, just try not to do something dumb. Yeah, and that's so true. Yeah, it is like Munger. He was a man for his time. Uh, <laughs> and you read, he's he was using behavioural insights before. Carmen and Tversky got their Nobel Prize for economics mm. for it. Uh, that he, he has been way ahead of the curve mm. on all this stuff. Mm. Um, you quickly met, you briefly mentioned um, the FANG stocks. Uh, do you have a position? So if we, as a firm, invest in value, uh, they don't have any of the criteria. One could argue Apple is yep. the old one out in there because yep. Apple is more, it's a manufacturing business. Yeah. It might pretend it's not, but ultimately, outsourcing and manufacturing is still manufacturing. Mm. Uh, whereas the other businesses have a more. Now, Apple's trying to read you, but the answer is no, it's not what we do. Yep. Again, circle of competency. I keep coming back to the same thing. Mm. You might even think I'm a monger style investor at the end of this. Um, mm. Is what's my edge on US large cap stocks? Mm. And your listeners should ask what's their edge as well. Mm. Um, I don't believe I've got one. Mm. 
I think they can be covered by more brilliant people I used to work with in the US who are closer to management, who have better access and have better resources than you'll ever have. Mm. So stay away from things you don't have an edge on. Large cap, US, not value, mm. in a sector that I don't fully understand. No yeah. need to be there. That's a fair point. Um, okay, so let's talk about then where you are seeing opportunities today. And maybe, you know, Sam, we, we talked a bit about shorting, where you're seeing some of the risks in the market today. Yeah, it's a very interesting time to be doing this podcast. Mm. Um, one, we are, I think, we're either late in the bull market mm. or if we're already at the end, I don't know. Um, but though I feel like I said that a year or two ago, but mm. now it, it's got a lot more of the characteristics of we're getting towards the end, mm. now, which may sound obvious unless you're going to sell everything. One big problem with that is nearly always the return in the bull market, you make the majority of returns in the last two years. Mm. You don't actually lose the majority of like. So being early there is as good as being wrong. Mm. Um, so just because you think you're near the end doesn't mean you should sell everything. What it means is you should, you should get, go stand near the emergency exit. Hmm. Um, <laughs> so what we see is there's this big dispersion between US stocks, which are expensive, mm -hmm. and the rest of the world. An area that we happen to love that has value and momentum is Japan. Mm. Uh, Japan is the forgotten cousin of world of the world. That <laughs> people that might go skiing there or visit, it's only mm -hmm. nine hours from Australia, um, less from Cairns. Good spot. Um, love the place. Awful place to invest. It's been for thirty years. Mm -hmm. Japan's going through fundamental change, um, and you know, like one of our sayings for the firm is slogans: "Is change creates opportunity." Mm. Uh, now that might sound obvious. Of course, mm -hmm. change does. But a lot of people don't actually look for change. They wait till it happens, and then they get caught up trying to decide what side of the fence they want to sit on. Mm. Um, and momentum can help bring you to the right change early, if you look at it that way. And Japan has reached the end of the road. They've got an aging population, mm -hmm. they're heavily indebted. Mm -hmm. So they need to get their GDP growing somehow. And Japan has always resisted any immigration. If you've been there, mm. you'll receive very yep. few immigrants in Japan. And they've always had a female workforce that was highly educated, but only ever had one child and never came back to work. Mm. So they've now moved the female participation rate to US levels in five years. Hmm. Most people wouldn't even be aware of that. Yeah, I didn't know that. That's... They've changed immigration policies literally this week. Huh. They're moving to an Australian-style visa program. Huh. And whether it's successful or not, no one believed they could get female participation rate up. They did it. Like, Japan's a country when it decides it wants to do something, it can do something. Yeah. And the stocks are cheap. So do you know that what the PE of the topics is, which is the equivalent of the ASX 200? No. 12 times. Well, yeah. Like, everyone mm. remembers Japan on 100 times, yeah. on 50 times, most expensive one. Do you know what the average yield is on these stocks now? Like 3%. Wow. Well. Like these businesses. Now, yes, they're more cyclical. They mm. should be cheaper. Compared to 18, 19, 20 times in the US, there's still businesses, world leaders in like robotics, et cetera, mm. that you can buy great businesses there. Um, we think things are really getting better for shareholders because one of the hard things about Japan was shareholders was not what they cared about. They cared about making the best Toyota car they could make. Mm. For them, they're perfectionists. They never really cared about capital allocation. So one thing is when you're on a PE of 12, you can actually pay out a 50% payout ratio and have a 4 to 5% yield and still grow your business. Mm. Um, so, and they've all got net cash in their balance sheet so they can buy back shares as well. They can have add a little bit of leverage to their balance sheet. The US is over-leveraged. Mm. Japan is under-leveraged. There's nothing like having a crisis, a near-death crisis to uh, make yourself concerned. So you know, <laughs> whether it works out or not, we see that was an area that is a great opportunity in it. Yeah, great. It's um, certainly it's unique in um, so at least the Australian funds management industry somewhat, so it's a, it's a good take. Um, 
Oh, as we come to the end of the discussion now, um, I want to talk to you about Mulfic and where you see the business going in the next three to five years. So where, where do you see it in the next five? Well, if you'd asked me five years ago, I don't know if I'd give the same answer. <laughs> it's one thing I've learned in life over my experiences living in different countries and that is you can have a mud map of where you want to go, but the world very rarely lets you go exactly where you want to go. Mm. But you need a mud map. Yep. Can't, can't not have a mud map. Um, look, we... You know, someone said to me, you're a five-year overnight success. Mm. I look at Jeff Wilson upstairs, and yeah. they're in our building. They're a 20-year overnight success. Mm. One thing about this industry is, uh, unlike playing football or sports, you don't become successful in a year or two. Mm. We've built a, a team here. We've got 11 people. We started with three. Well, think of it, the other way I think of it is that we launched in a one-square room. All of us was in one room. Mm. Uh, on Macquarie Street with three people. We had flat pack boxes from Ikea hmm. and we had no screwdriver and we put them together with a 10 cent coin. Um, <laughs> That's great. And Jeff came in over the weekends because the uh, desks didn't fit properly with a, with a saw and chopped off the bottom of the desks. Uh, so our legs could fit through them. <laughs> and we launched with $3 million in hope. We're at $200 million. We've got two funds, major funds. Now we're just launching a European fund. We're raising money over there. Hmm. I think last count, we have a couple of thousand separate investors. Um, Great. So it's been a journey to get to here. Where do I want to go? One thing, though, is we won't be Magellan. I respect the business they've built, but running one thing about Longshore is shorting, you need a certain amount of what's called borrow. Yeah. For me to short a stock, I need to be able to borrow it. And the biggest risk for a shorter is you get squeezed. Mm. You get stuck short a stock you can't get out of. Mm. And then, as, as any of your listeners will know, stocks can go into infinity, but they can only ever go to zero in the other direction. Mm. I, my losses could be infinite. Yep. So you, you have limits on the amount of money you can run from doing this. So we think it's maybe two to three billion, yep. which is still a long way away. Yeah. But nonetheless, I, I think we can build a very good business. Um, and I just think ESG and ethical investing is, at Hunter Hall, no one, if you'd asked me then, I would have said, look, I've been here five years. And yes, there's some interest, but I'm not certain if this will ever catch on in the broader community. Mm. I think climate change, millennials in particular, mm. millennials have a very different view of the world. Um, a statistic I was quoting in Europe is 75% of millennials when asked what do you want from your investment returns was number two hmm. they want to know that the company is doing something that's better for the world they, they want to make money Yeah. the baby boomers have the exact opposite hmm. uh, they're, they're, millennials are different and the investment community is not fully adapted to understanding that millennials will be inheriting a lot of money in the next 10 to 20 years hmm. and I, yep. look I love capitalism and I, I don't love socialism. Um, and I'm a capitalist, I'm an economist, and I think capitalism is one of the greatest creations of mankind. And, but I do think capitalism did lose its way in the last 30 years, and we wrote a, a piece on our website about this, that if you go back 100 years, capitalism used to be more inclusive in some ways. Uh, you think of uh, J.D. Rockefeller, they may not have been nice people, but they gave a lot to charity and they did other things. The idea that profit should only be the only thing a business ever does is sort of a really a 1980s construct. Mm. Um, so people say, when we're going to socialism. I'd say caring about your employees and your staff and the environment that you operate in, it's actually going back to, I'd say, more inclusive capitalism. Mm. Germany and Scandinavia operates with a very successful capitalism that's more inclusive. Mm. Because I don't think if capitalism adapts, the shareholders, the millennials, etc., and the world may not tolerate capitalism. So I, I see lots of interesting change, and I think a, a larger room for for ESG and ethical investing in it. Yeah, I think you're, um, you've got some good times ahead of you. Um, while we're on that, it's open to retail investors, right? Yeah, so we have uh, a couple of different vehicles. Um, yep. So the, we have, uh, the easiest one for retail investors is the LIC. Yep. 
so the ticker is MEC, mm -hmm. uh, trading a discount NAV, so I'd suggest it's a very good time to buy. <laughs> yep. Um, and uh, we do pay divvies, frank divvies on that. Yeah, so, um, you know, Jeff Wilson, who runs an excellent business, has given some advice about best ways to work there. We do two road shows a year. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got another one coming up in November where we get out and meet as many people as possible. Um, we do blogs, we do things like this. You, we, yeah. we have a, a, like a weekly information, there's plenty of, you can feel, you can, have, you can have as much to do with your superannuation as little to do with it is what you want. Um, we do video updates as mm -hmm. well. Um, and we have a unit trust that, that's uh, offered, uh, so if you're doing a self-managed super, it's through a number of platforms like Panorama, or you can come direct as well mm. uh, through that as well. Yeah, five grand minimum, is that right? Uh, ten grand minimum, Ten sorry. grand minimum. Uh, yeah, but okay. for the MEC, uh, it's obviously yeah, one share. Or through your brokerage account. Through your brokerage account. Yeah, right. Um, yep, yeah, it's, um, it's a good place to go is the website. Uh, you can subscribe to the newsletter, like you say. Yeah, so morphicasset.com has um, signed up to the newsletter. Uh, we do also a half yearly report. Mm -hmm. We don't do quarterly, we do video. Millennials prefer yep, video. we do. And uh, if we we'll just look at our shareholder base, we have this barbell. A lot of older people who actually, you know, as in some people believe that some millennials perhaps believe the older people don't care. They do, mm -hmm. um, and millennials obviously very engaged. Mm -hmm. um, may not have as much money, but they're very engaged. On their website, uh, and our half yearly has runs twenty odd pages, gives you an outlook, and we always finish up a little bit lightheartedly. Things that won't happen in the next half, <laughs> so things that we believe will not happen, yeah, uh, called our anti forecasts. <laughs> right, great. Um, Interesting question, and um, I believe that um, you guys are invested in your own funds, correct? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, would, would you invest with anyone? Would you invest with another fund manager who didn't have that alignment? Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know where that's. Sort of, but my answer would be no. I, I, I think you know, there's two parts to it. Uh, I, I do get asked the question a lot. One part is like, I don't invest PA anymore. Yeah. Uh, for for two one part put two parts to this <laughs> one part is one. Um, I don't have the time. As in, my investors should know this is what my sole focus is. Yeah. Now, obviously, I would have liked you know, higher staff for them to know at some point in their career they did it, but uh, I'm quite busy these days, and it's, my investors should know that this is what I'm doing, not punting on mm -hmm. the side. Secondly is obviously I don't want to be putting myself in conflict with my yeah. investors. So, yes, so if I, if I want exposure to markets and I think I'm good at my job, of course I should have money in my fund. Yeah. But I don't believe it's incumbent that you have all your wealth in the fund. Just like no investor would all put all their wealth in one thing, mm. I would actually say any fund manager who's that's all they've ever done probably doesn't understand risk management. Mm. Um, so, but at the same time, I wouldn't. I would. I would be very disappointed if my fund manager did not have a at least a decent chunk of their equity exposure. Uh, if you're 65, you probably shouldn't have 100% of your wealth in equities. Mm. So expecting your fund manager to do it probably says he doesn't actually follow his own rules. Mm. But he should have a decent exposure to it as well. And uh, final question, Chad, my favourite. <laughs> if you go back in time and, and change just one thing, or, or you could tell the younger you something about money, finance or investing, what would it be? I think markets climb a wall of worry. Mm -hmm. And I've now been through two recessions since I started, or bear markets, the mm -hmm. US one in 2000, 2001, and then 07, We might have another one. I just turned 40 this year. I'll be <laughs> up on three. And after each one of them, I found reasons why things would not get better. Um, and when you're a long-term investor, that long-term time horizon pays off. And mm. if I look back, I never really had an, I, funnily enough, I gave the advice to people. <laughs> and I never followed my own advice. Was patience and a long time horizon. Like, 
we've had lots of stuff go wrong. Uh, we've mm. had a GFC, and yet markets have all gone. To, and there's always a reason why it won't go up, and that's why equities generate you such good return. Yet very few people actually make out of equities what the return of equities were. If, if, mm-hmm. if you want me to expand on that a little bit more, yeah, which, which just means there's this conundrum that the return of a fund, so that's the dollar-weighted return of a fund, is different to the time-weighted return. Mm. So how that, to translate that into English, is investors nearly always tend to pull their money out the lows and put their money in at the highs. Mm. So they get bearish, they don't do anything, and then then they go, oh, look, things are actually getting better. And by the time they got to that point, they're too late. Mm. And I'd say follow my own advice and write some rules down earlier. Mm. Um, I was just going to, you won't know, be able to see it, but these were bear market rules given to me on my wall. It's a yellowing piece of paper now because it's coming up on 10 years old. I printed it out in 08. Some simple rules that you stick to, and might be stop losses, what to do, writing a trade diary, Mm -hmm. will make you a vastly better investor than what you were. Um, And it took me a long time to learn those two things. That's great. So advice would be maybe think about what, um, what you want to get out of investing, write them down. And uh, put them somewhere you remember. Yeah, yeah I'm sorry. Uh, just one last one on that. Is that. What you want out of investing, and I didn't know you were going to say that, Jeff, my head of risk, uh, says people get out of markets what they want. Mm. If you want to be unhappy, you will, the, you will create an outcome for yourself that you want. Mm. What, ask yourself, what do you want from equity markets? Do you want to be rich? Do you want to be engaged? Do you want a hobby? And if you don't, ask yourself that question you won't know why you're in markets if you don't know why you're in markets you're the bunny in the trade Mm. there's no right or wrong answer but the answer to the question will sort of define what you should be doing in markets as well Mm. Um, I don't think enough professional investors ask themselves that they don't know why they come to work they want a bit of money but they don't really understand Uh, I think it's incredibly important to know what you want out of markets that's great great advice Chad thank you for your time and all of your insights I wish you all the best with Morphic Thanks again for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast. For further episodes, head to www.raskfinance.com. To provide feedback, nominate a guest, or hear from me, you can find me on Twitter with the handle at Owen Rask. Cheers to our financial futures. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.